Get ready for an hour filled with conspiracies, UFOs, ghosts, the paranormal, legends, and myths from around the world. Chasing Prophecy Radio, where the paranormal is supernatural. With your hosts, Sean Kelly, Jenny Nicasio, Bob Dog Pagani. Welcome to the Chasing Prophecy Radio, and here are your hosts, Sean, Bob, and Jenny. Good evening, everyone. Welcome back to Chasing Prophecy, where we discuss anything and everything beyond the scope of normal. Remember, you can rewind 24-7 on beaconoflightradio.com and check out chasingprophecy.com and Facebook us and Instagram us. Make sure you download the Skype app. For your smartphone so you can join the conversation. Happy Thursday to all of you. I'm Jenny Nicassi along with Sean Kelly and Bob Dog Bagani. So I just want to let you guys know that Bob's a little late today. He's a police officer, so he had to, you know, take care of business. So he'll be joining us in a couple of minutes, I hope. So glad to have you. We had another great show with Dave Barra last week talking books and conspiracies. If you haven't listened, you are encouraged to go back and rewind on beaconoflightradio.com. I found out over the weekend that a lot of summer events were canceled, and I'm really kind of bummed out about it. My church festival was canceled, along with Fourth of July fireworks, and it's such a bummer, Sean. What do you think about yeah, that? Same here over where I live. Um, I live in Dormont, and uh, this is the first year that the pool hasn't been open for the summer. And Dormont Pole is like like a landmark where everybody goes swimming and stuff. Um, our Fourth of July has been canceled, and That's I don't sad. know. It, it is just like bummer, beyond bummer. <laughs> it's really bummer, depressing, you know, because you look at all these kids out in their yards, and it's like, come on, give them something to do. You know? Well, I was really disappointed when I found out the Kecksburg UFO Festival was canceled. I was so looking forward to that. Unfortunately, it's another casualty of COVID. Have you ever been there before? No, I haven't. Oh, it's really cool. I went there a few years ago with my son, and I was really looking forward to this year. But unfortunately, it's not going to happen. But it's been almost 56 years, and we still don't have any answers to what crashed in that town of Kecksburg. And it happened December 9th, 1965, and the residents reported that a fireball streaked through the sky and crashed in the nearby woods. UFO skeptics say it was a hoax, but something did happen. I think something happened, and I wrote about it in From the Sky. But the townspeople said it fell from the sky, similar to Roswell. And for the last 55 years, it's been one of the, America's most intriguing UFO mystery. And... We can't attend the um, UFO Festival, but we can talk about it tonight. So I'm happy to bring that story to everyone. And by the end of the show, I hope we can make some believers out there and maybe change some people's mind of what they thought the Kecksburg crash was. And tonight, I have the pleasure of welcoming writer, director, producer of the Kecksburg movie, Cody Knotts. Welcome to Chasing Prophecy, Cody. Uh, Thank you. Nice to be on here. I'm glad to have you. Cody, tell our listeners a little bit about you and your movie. Uh, I am originally from Washington County, Pennsylvania, and I live now at the United States Military Academy, which is incredible to get to say. My wife's the music director there. Oh, and wow. 
Yeah, neat place. Uh, and so we were involved. Uh, we started the film before she got the job there, and we started working with Ronnie and, and uh, Stan Gordon and everybody involved in the community uh, and wrote a script. And it has been three and a half years of my life. Wow. So this is film number uh, five. Um, and I'm actually, I didn't want to do another UFO film, and I'm about to do another one, which I could be doing. But. You're doing another one. And what's that about? Uh, the Hopkinsville UFO incident. Um, so I so I was actually supposed to be in Kentucky next week, but I'm not going to be. Uh, not wow. until July. Wow. Why Kecksburg? And why not the other uh, I was fascinated with it when I watched it on Unsolved Mysteries with my dad, and I knew that it was near Pittsburgh, and I actually didn't know where it was at. And then when we were in, when I moved to Uniontown, when I got uh, married, uh, it was very close, and I thought this is really neat, and I'd never been out there. And so then I went out and I met uh, some people from MUFON, and they introduced me to Ronnie, and uh, we just kept moving from there. So, what was the allure about this story that made you want to make a movie out of it? The government lying the government taking something. I, I have real issues with the government supposed to be for the people, by the people, and of the people. And it believes, and there's people that believe that, that we don't have a right to know. Uh, that gets under my skin at a whole host of levels because it implies that they're better and more than, uh, that I'm a child and that they're an adult and they get to decide what I know and don't know for my betterment. And that, that I have a huge problem with that. And I totally agree with you. <laughs> we all agree about that. The government tries to cover up a lot of things. Um, now, was did anything, I know the story of Kecksburg, but did anything unusual happen on the set? Or anybody come to ask you questions? Anything like that? You know, we had, I'll tell you something was odd. We had, uh, one day we were filming at the radio, we had radio station scenes since John Murphy worked at a radio station. And uh, the gentleman appears on screen, works for the State Department, and he calls us up and says, can I be part of the film? And we needed someone to be a man in black, so we had this gentleman from the State Department at a higher level. is HGS-14, I think. He's only mm -hmm. 15 level government service. Um, and he's in this, he said, what am I going to be doing? He thought he'd just be an extra. And I said, you're going to be a man in black, and you're going to hold down Ricky Nelson's granddaughter and be holding her down so she can have her finger chopped off. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Damn. Because <laughs> I asked him, you know, Ricky Nelson was. He said, yeah, because he was an older guy. He said, I remember Ricky Nelson and Ozzy and Harriet. And I said, well, this is his granddaughter. Welcome. <laughs> so that was, that was a lot of fun. That was, It seems like it was fun. Now, are your characters, I mean, are the characters portraying actual people in the movie? That John, are... John Murphy is. Everybody Sean else Murphy. is. John Murphy. Yeah, there John Murphy. Everybody else is a uh, um, fictional character inspired by real people in the event. So at the at, when we showed the film at the premiere in Uniontown, uh, Mabel Mazza, that was John Murphy's secretary who's still alive, she walked uh, in with Remy, who played a fictional character that was the secretary, but was still inspired by what happened with her. Um, okay. So they, they, they actually walked down with, with Remy Moses, who is Tracy Nelson's uh, daughter, and Ricky Nelson's granddaughter. Okay, so John John Murphy was the only one that was based on a real character. How close was yeah. he to the how, the real, the character in the movie, I, how close was he I to will, John Murphy? 
I will say what Mabel said. Mabel talked to our actor, Scott Cooper, who's from South Africa, and she said, and, and she looked at a picture and she said, Scott, you're, you're really, Scott's a very attractive guy. He's a leading man. He looks like John Hamm from Mad Men. Uh, easy way to describe him. And she said, John Murphy wasn't an attractive man. <laughs> so you- <laughs> it was, it was, it was I said, well, our leading man has to be, I mean, we, 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 we cast a traditional leading man and, uh, I love working with Scott. Actually, Scott's going to play the lead in the Hopkinsville film also. So mm-hmm. I liked working with him that much that we uh, wanted to do it again. It was a great experience. Okay, so the so characters are fictional. Case, the characters are fictional, but is the story fictional, or did you go by what people said? We were inspired by that, but it's still a fictional story. So we were not making a documentary. There's the, the documentary that Stan made, which is a great I mean, it's an incredible oral history. Uh, it would be hard to top. My wife and I do a lot of historical first-person reenactments, and so we're in the historic oral history, and Stan did a first-rate job. I mean, the, to capture all those interviews and to put them all together, uh, I don't know how someone would top that from a documentary. So we, were, we wanted to tell a fictional tale because we hoped to draw people to the, the area and in so doing, bring the story back up. Mm-hmm. And is there anything else you can tell us about the movie that is similar to what happened on the actual event in 1965? Well, it, it, it arriving, uh, the fireman being there, um, John Murphy being there, John Murphy dying later. Um, all those things are there. Uh, the the men coming to the radio station. Our, our man in black was played by Eric Hack, who is. Uh, Who's actually right afterwards? He went over to Iraq because he's an intelligence officer. He's a warrant officer. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what he does in real life. It's this type of spooky stuff. Um, yeah. and, and so that that was kind of neat. I mean, you just get someone who does it as their daily life. Uh, I mean, he acts, but it's on the side. His main job is working as a warrant officer. Um, and I'm not. He has another job that's his actual civilian job, but I can't say what that is. Um, I'm serious. I can't tell you what it is, which is, it's uh, people who worked with him knew what it was, but we can't say it on media. Okay. Um, So when you wrote the um, the story, the screenplay, uh, how did you? When you wrote the screenplay, did you use anything from actual, um, like John Murphy? There was a lot of things. It was really interesting because. And we didn't know a lot of what, for example, Mabel said. And when I called her, this is after we wrote it, she said, I told them we have a constitution. We took a lot of the film as a discussion of what the country is and what it means to have a constitution, um, which people have not done in a, in a, in a film. And so uh, a lot of those things are, are, are part of that. Um, and so there, there's elements of things for, you know, but there was a fire chief that went there and there was the lady who made the phone call to the radio mm-hmm. station. Uh, we decided to make, we had to c- condense these characters. So we made the lady who calls the radio station happen to be the fire, the fire chief's wife. Um, because that way they all were interacting and we could have more of a cohesive story. Um, 
So you have these elements, and then the idea of whatever was there and it being an acorn shape, all those elements are still there. Um, yeah, so okay. we had a little bit, and, and with multiple uh, African-American musicians, mm-hmm. and, and combined them into one person. Like, so we made a fictional character, which represents all of them. Um, and so we, we had him as part of the story also. So okay. that, that was, you know, so, so the, the, the elements of it were there, but then you take it and you, you go, okay, how do you, how do you put it into a story and, and craft it and try to focus it? How, how many, um, I know you said the men in black were in the, in the movie. Now, how much yeah. of a part, how much of a part did they play in the movie as to in actual life? I know people said they saw men in black. But did you put them as a villain? A lot more. They they, they are. They are. The man, the main man in black, which is we named him Agent Donovan, Agent Kirk Donovan, is the uh, he's the protagonist. So he's almost on screen as much as the good guy. Um, So we follow him, but we see him through the eyes of the people that he's interacting with. So we have the fire chief, which we named Stan after Stan Gordon. I'm I'm thrilled Stan's on here tonight. we, so that was kind of fun to to get to name the fire chief after Stan. Um, and I had an uncle Stanley, so it was cool to me too. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, um, but so yeah, the the man in black is in the film a lot more because you have that conflict between John Murphy representing the free press and this idea of the government and the government hiding things um, and, and the arguments that they have. So you put a lot of that into the movie, the government hiding the conspiracy in that and you put it into the movie that's good yes yes there's, there's, cool. a, there's a lot of discussion about there's a couple lines where he says we have a constitution he says uh you know what gives you the right to kill us because he's threatening to kill him and he says we have a con-, you know in the government an executive order such and such and he said we have a constitution we have rights and the man in black says no you have an illusion um and i think that's part of what a lot of people are feeling even today like what exactly are our rights um and and when can they be taken away from us and isn't that the whole point of it do you think um a lot of the ufo sightings that there are today that the government covers covers it up i think the government plays a lot of games with it i think sometimes it's us testing technology and we manipulate people in the ufo community so that they can cover up what they're doing but other nations know it I also think they're not very honest about the possibility of extraterrestrial life. Um, so I, I think it depends on the moment and, mm-hmm. and what they need. Because, you know, the, be- the best thing of all is, 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 is deception and, and misdirection. Mm-hmm. Um, I can get you looking over here and you're thinking it's this, but it's really this. Um, and, and so, you know, and, and not a lot of thoughts put into, you know, even I'll supply you with witnesses to tell the story I want you to tell. Um, that, that's just, that's an old standard game where the person, I mean, someone seems very sincere and they're telling you something, but they're actually not telling the truth. Um, there, so, and I don't like any of that. I don't care mm-hmm. should behave in perfect fashion. No, it's mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they sometimes treat us as little children. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, John Murphy, um, there was some mystery behind his death. Now, did you put anything like that into the movie? Well, he, he, he dies in the film and, you know, obviously it's a, it's a, it's a narrative 
it's not a documentary. So, you know, John Murphy is uh, killed and, you know, it, it's obviously our protagonist. Um, and we don't hide that. We open the film with telling you that John Murphy's going to die. Mm-hmm. So the purpose of watching, I'm not giving anything away by saying the Batman Black kills him. Because that's, that's not hidden from the very yeah. first opening uh, of the film. You're informed by a witness who's talking to you. There's an opening monologue uh, that John Murphy died. And he died. It's really interesting. It says uh, defending the Constitution. Um, so this this is very different. I don't I don't think there's ever been a film made that is a direct discussion of the Bill of Rights um, in narrative form and using the story as an allegory for for the Bill of Rights. Um, but I think that that needed. In fact, the film's going to the con film market, which is a virtual film market this year uh, on the 21st. Hmm. So we're hoping the international rights sell DVDs for sale in the U.S. No, no, it'll be on whatever they sell for streaming, whatever they sell for any of those rights, that'll all be done at the film market. So, so we have to wait to find out where this, you can find the movie to watch it. So we have to wait. No, the, the DVD is for sale right now. Um, and where, so, where can someone find your movie then? Uh, at kexfordufomovie.com. Oh, great, great. And, and there's and the, the DVD, and the, right now there's, we have a book, we have a companion book, which is a fictional version of the files. It even has the language translated on the ship, and it's supposed to be Agent Donovan's files, and it has the inside of the spaceship book, which was done by the founder of the uh, search engine, Michael Mal- Dr. Michael Malden. Um, he designed what the ship, what he thought the ship would look on the inside and what the language was. And he's actually an expert in languages, which is how he invented the search engine. Um, out of Carnegie Mellon. So, oh, uh, it's exciting. He, he, he lives in Texas, but, you know, he always makes a joke. People say, change the world. He said, I did that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, I think it would definitely change. Well, Cody, you can stick around um, or you can, you know, it's up to you. We're going to, uh, we were going to take a quick break, but I think we're just going to go right into it. Um so we're not going to do that. So I want you to know that we have a special, we have two special guests and they are Stan Gordon. He's a researcher and an author who made his life mission tell what really happened that December day in 1965. And we have an eyewitness to the crash. Um, Ron Strubble. I hope I don't roll in your name, Ron. Is, how would you, how do we pronounce that Strubble? Uh, pronounce it Struble like Struble. Okay. <laughs> well, welcome both of you to Chasing Prophecy. There was the fiction aspect of Kecksburg event, and then there is what our next, you guys, the true story. Um, what happened on December 9th, 1965 in Stan. Uh, he believes actually what happened on December day in Kecksburg's was something a little bit different than what we may think it is. So, Stan, welcome to Chasing Prophecy. Thank you for having me on the program. Awesome. It's been about 56 years since the crash in Kecksburg. Tell our audience who doesn't know about the crash what you recalled happened, because you were 16, weren't you? Yes, I was. Well, it's 
we, we could talk for days about what we've uncovered on the case, but just the, the short part of the story is I remember that night very well. How I got involved, it was a Thursday night, as you said, December 9th, 1965. I was actually um, getting ready to listen to KDK Radio in Pittsburgh because they had a, a talk radio show. It was called um, Contact, and the host of the show was the late Mike Levine. And he had a guest who was scheduled to come on. His name was Frank Edwards, as some people may recognize. He was a journalist who had written some books on unusual occurrences. So I wanted to tune in and listen to see what Frank Edwards had to say. And as we're listening to the show, almost the entire show is now starting to concentrate on breaking news of this brilliant fiery object that was observed from Ontario, Canada, over Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania. And it was a very interesting night. I remember very well. I was running back and forth between the old black and white console TV and the radio trying to get updated reports. And um, the reports um, were very interesting. And apparently, whatever the object was, it came in over the Pittsburgh area about 4.47 p.m. So it was just getting dark in this area. And... Apparently, the police departments, the radio and TV stations, the newspapers were just being overwhelmed with so many people calling in about seeing this brilliant fire object crossing the sky. Well, I, I can tell you, there was a lot of interesting details that night, but there was a lot of information that we didn't know at that point. And, um, well, we did know that later that evening was that whatever the object was, it apparently fell into a wooded ravine uh, in a outside of Kecksburg, Pennsylvania, and uh, again, a lot of what I'm going to talk about is what I learned over many, many years following up on the incident after the incident happened. It took me weeks and months and years to track down hundreds of witnesses or people who were involved or people who had knowledge about the case, and what I found out was that the object came in uh, from Allegheny County, from the Pittsburgh area, moved into Westmoreland County. The object came in over uh, Greensburg, Pennsylvania. It proceeded out roughly towards Route 30 East, but it made a turn to the south. And it was seen by all these different people in the small rural communities, um, Pleasant Unity, uh, Marguerite, uh, Norvelt. And what I found out was that this object continued to move out towards the mountains of Louisville, and then it began to head back towards uh, Kecksburg, and then made another turn before it fell. So it was interesting. So you have to turn between uh, outside of Greensburg, making a turn to the south. It continues to move out to the mountains of Laurelville. It, it, from what we understand, it kind of hesitated, started to turn back, back track back towards Kecksburg, made another turn began to, before it began to drop down to the Wooded Ravine. And the people who saw it said this thing did not come down at a high rate of speed that you would have, uh, for example, if a meteor came down, a uh, reentry of some type of space object, it came down almost like it made a controlled landing, but moments later we are told that a comma kind of a grayish bluish smoke rose up from the area, but it dissipated very, very quickly. And what we did not know at the time, and that's what I found out, which was so interesting, because over so many years, I tracked down so many people, and it wasn't easy finding people because a lot of people were not forthcoming. They didn't want to just come forward and talk about it. Even, 
Even today, of, of the hundreds of people I interviewed, the high percenters of those witnesses have never come forward publicly, and unfortunately many of them are now deceased. But what I found out was that some of the local residents, soon after the object fell, they went down into the Wooded Ravine, and that's when they came across this large metallic acorn-shaped object semi-buried in the ground. So this thing is kind of an off-gold bronze color. It's one solid piece of metal. That's what's important. It's one solid piece of metal with no weld or with no rivet marks, no seams. And the back part of the object, like you have on the back, the razor part on an acorn, witnesses said on that surface raised up or what appeared to be symbols. And um, one witness who was very close to it from his memory, when he tried to remember what the symbols looked like, he he looked in the books and went to libraries over the years. He said it looked similar to what he saw that was similar to ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics. And um, it, it's an amazing story of all the people I was able to track down because, once again, sometimes I would get uh, calls from a relative or a neighbor of a person who was involved. I would get anonymous tips. Sometimes people would over the years come forward after many years. And um, so it was very interesting because most of these people did not know each other. And they had no idea the details they were telling me. And it was so interesting to see how the little details people were giving me fit in after so many years from people who were so far away. Because many of the people involved were not from Kecksburg area, um, and right in that general area. Many people, after hearing the radio and TV information being broadcast that night, they found a way into Kecksburg to try to get a glimpse of the object. So many people involved were not from the immediate Kecksburg area. Hmm. And they That's have the same they have the same similar account of what was on the uh, the craft. They said it was a similar the, the same metallic, the same the symbols. Well, you had people you had many, many people saw the object in the sky. Then you had many people come out to the Kecksburg area, and and there's so, there's so many aspects of this. I mean, it would take us hours and hours to even begin to get involved in it. But for, first, what we found out is one: first, you had civilians who were involved. Then you had the volunteer firemen that came in, some who came across the object. Then you had the military show up. So what was so important that military personnel, we know Army and Air Force were involved, that they responded so quickly to come out to that small rural community to recover whatever was that fell. Mm-hmm. But yes, Can I step in here a minute? Similar descriptions. Go um, ahead, Sean. Thanks. Stan, I was doing some research, and uh, thank you for being on the show. And um, through the research that I was going to, and I don't know if you knew about it or not, but um, maybe I'm wrong, but back in 1944, um, during World War II, did the Germans actually build a UFO? Because I know they were into making them. Yeah, are you talking about the Nazi build the Glock? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the Glock is one of numerous theories that have been proposed for the object. And I, I am no expert on the Nazi bell. I've read a lot of talk of people who claim they, they've done a lot of research on it. And it's one of many theories, and we know that the, the Nazis were working on a lot of advanced aircraft, and one of the theories was that they were working on this device that, depending on what you read, some will tell you some type of anti-gravity device or some type of time machine. 
mm-hmm. and w- there were some similarities, I understand, to the description of what some people saw, but I've never seen any indication that that project became a reality. I mean, I keep an open mind to all possibilities. My my position is this. I've been investigating the case since the day it happened. I was not involved in it that night except for the research. I was not at the scene. But I've talked to many, many people who were involved at different levels, and we just don't know what it was. I mean, that's the mystery. There's multitudes of theories on it. Uh, I keep an open mind all possibilities, whether it was something man-made or something extraterrestrial or from somewhere else, but I keep an open mind. And hopefully someday we'll have that conclusive evidence that will tell us what, once and for all what this object was. But what's so fascinating about the story is that you have so many people who documented the fact that something did fall from the sky and the military came in very quickly to recover it, and after so many years later, our government has never come forth and told us exactly what happened that night. Um, I don't know. I just got this as I was studying research and this stuff. Um, is it, it? I do believe it's possible that uh, that the Americans they snatched that thing off off of the Nazis, and for some reason I I don't know, but I think that somehow we were involved, the Americans into actually launching it, all right, or doing something, because with the Army being there mm-hmm. to, you know, to come up and get it, it, it's just, like, really crazy to even think that, I don't know, it's just, like, I, I feel like that this is another government cover-up, you know? Um, well, there, there's in, no doubt there was a definite cover-up. And, again, there's a lot of details that a lot of people don't know, and, I mean, yeah, for them to, re- to respond as quickly as they did. And, and also what's interesting is what we learned from the, the scene, from the people who were there over the years and independently told me their accounts. And you had armed soldiers out there who reportedly, and different people confirmed the story, that they actually aimed their rifles or weapons at civilians mm-hmm. to prevent them from going down to the impact site um, and to keep them out of the area. But what the military didn't know was the fact that some of the locals had already got down into the area before they arrived. Mm-hmm. So that, that's an interesting part of the story. But there's a lot more to the story, a lot more than we'll have time to talk about today. And, um, again, the, the Glock, the Nazi bell is one of many, many theories out there. Mm-hmm. It, it's very interesting. Um, but there's other aspects of the story that just doesn't seem to fit with that. And, you know, hopefully again someday, somebody will come up with some definitive proof, some government documents, something that will confirm what actually fell. What, uh, um, one more question, Stan. Real quick. <laughs> go ahead, um, go ahead, Sean. Thank you, Jen. I was wondering, why do you think the government covers up all the UFO sightings? Well, again, with Kecksburg, you know, it's an ongoing mystery. We don't know for certain what we're dealing with. It's very interesting. And there's various reasons why the government would respond so quickly. I mean, remember, though, that was the Cold War. And uh, there was a, a lot of a lot of the space race was just beginning, actually. And we were interested in what, for example, the, the Soviets would have been launching in their technology. So we'd want to recover it if that was the case. Uh, there's a lot of reasons involved in it. But I can tell you, you know, I deal with UFO sightings all the time. Reports come in all the time. My hotline's been open since 1969. It never stops ringing. Between emails and reports, 
there's calls always coming in, even during the, the virus going on. We're still having reports of UFOs and cryptids and strange creature reports, which I believe we'll talk about next week. But um, my feeling is this, talking to a lot of resources over the years, I truly believe the government knows a lot more about the UFO phenomena than they're telling the public, but they do not have the answers themselves. I think they're finding, as I've been finding for many, many years, that the UFO phenomena is much more involved, much stranger, and scientifically much more advanced than we, we understand at this point. I, I said many years ago from the data that I saw from the thousands of cases I worked on that there's more than one origin to the unknown category. There's many UFO sightings that are misidentifications. That's common all the time. I mean, recently, uh, the planet Venus, the Starlink satellites, um, lights on aircraft, meteors, you can go on and on and mm -hmm. on. But every year you get very detailed accounts of incidents that you cannot easily dismiss. And many of the cases I worked on, I mean, these were large structured objects, very close to the ground, even cases where they were on the ground, many in the greater Pittsburgh area. People don't realize about the sightings that go on all the time. But you don't hear about it because most witnesses want no publicity. But uh, it may be a small percentage of these things, maybe extraterrestrial. I'm seeing more and more, and this we'll talk about next week, more and more data suggests to me that with some UFOs and with a lot of the cryptid phenomena, we may be dealing with something that has a physical and a non-physical component to it that, for a lack of a better term, might be interdimensional. And it, it's a very complex phenomena, but it's amazing what we're dealing with. And I, I, I think the government knows a lot more than they're telling us, but they don't have the answers themselves. And especially since they released those Pentagon videos, it makes it a little bit, you know, real. And it's out there. One thing I want to ask you, um, Stan, John Ventry, he did some research. And his explanation to the symbols on the side of the object, there was one symbol, the five-pointed star with a circle in the center. He says that's an Army and Air Force symbol. The RV was also attached to a, a rocket base. And do you know, what do you say to that? And what say you on that with the symbols? Do you, do you believe that they are? symbols very only a few saw the symbols close and nobody knows for certain what the symbols actually look like or their positioning it's all from memory so i mean I, that's something i've talked about over and over again i mean some of the symbols i i show um one of the drawings on my website was based on one witness from years ago and he tried to remember them to the best of his ability unfortunately nobody drew them you know it, it was an event it was 1965 Nobody had cell phone cameras back then, and the incident happened so quick. People were not looking for a UFO or, what, for again, unidentified flying object. They were looking for what they thought was a downed aircraft in the area. Then they come across this object down in the woods, and as uh, Jim Romansky told me, who was very close to it, he was a machinist all his life, almost all of his life, and thought that what he saw was very unusual. In fact, his description is very important because he said, it looked like somebody took liquid metal and poured it into an acorn-shaped mold. That's very, very important. And um, so that's the situation. Mm -hmm. Nobody knows for certain what any of these symbols look like or what positioning they would have been. Well, let's bring Ron on. And, Ron, tell us what you um, what happened, what you saw, if you can remember. Was it the same thing that Stan's talking about? 
Well, first, uh, Jen, I want to thank you for uh, letting me on your show. Oh, thank you for coming uh, on. <laughs> this uh, this happened, of course, many, many years ago. And, uh, you know, I'm a 45-year fireman and EMS uh, active person still with uh, Kecksburg Volunteer Fire Department and EMS. I'm a certified EMT. And... Uh, you know, we had to cancel the festival because of the coronavirus. But uh, yeah. many, I'll just start from the beginning. In uh, 1965, got married in 63, 65, I was living on 429 Oakland Avenue in Greensburg, uh, Stan's hometown. And uh, the wife and I heard this on the radio, of course, and we looked at our apartment which was 429 Oakland Avenue was kind of on the, the one of the higher points in Greensburg. And we could see the streak in the sky. I seen the orange streak in the sky. So, and they were saying initially that it came down near a town of Weldy Town. Well, I was born and raised in Weldy Town. And I, you know, hunted many years, both in Kecksburg and Weldy Town. And I knew the area like the back of my hand. So, the wife and I jumped in our car and, you know, back then we went out and whenever we got there with, you know, it takes you about 15, 20 minutes to get from Greensburg to what is now Meteor Road. And we looked down in the hall below us and we could see what looked like to us, the military walking around. And since then, you know, there was, there was a, a group of, well, maybe 10 or 12 residents plus one of the firefighters that is now dead and gone. And they wouldn't let us down in. But since then, uh, you know, I met Stan and, and we kind of got involved. One of the ladies in the auxiliary made a shirt design of this acorn. And she made and sold a few shirts and you know while i was a young guy in the company i got involved with the uh, fire company in 1975 and i became fire chief and i was ems chief and so on and so forth but uh, while i was in the company you know i met these guys like jim mays who was a firefighter and ems person and bob mays or Bob Bittner, excuse me, Bob Bittner, who was also a fireman. And these guys testified that the military was there. And in fact, Bob Bittner testified that the military pointed a gun at him. Now, both mm-hmm. these guys I knew very well, and they went to their deathbed stating that this thing happened, that the military was there. What they took out, like Stan said, we don't know. And there, so, I worked, well, mm-hmm. let me uh, finish up here. I worked with Westinghouse Transportation in Pittsburgh. And during my tenure there, before I retired, at the retirement party, one of the guys that I worked with, his name was Dean Campbell. He came up to me and said, 
hey, you know that thing you keep talking about? I was there. I seen the truck coming down through town with the acorn or whatever it was on it. And he came and he testified to me that he was there. And, you know, people like that that were, you know, Stan can give you account after account that, that people in that era weren't forthright with coming forward with the information, whether they were scared or whatever. You know, today you wouldn't get away with that. But back then, you know, people just didn't want to be labeled that, you know, they saw a UFO. Mm-hmm. But as far as I'm concerned, it did happen. I seen the streak in the sky. I seen the military there. So whatever they took out of there, you know, something really did happen. So you actually went down to where it crashed and you, you were able to go down into the woods or did the military actually stop you? No, we couldn't get see the fire police from Kecksburg kept us from if if you were picture yourself on a road on a hillside and down in the ravine or the hollow was where this happened. Now we couldn't see because of the where we was actually where it went down, but we could see the military walking around down in there. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people say, like Stan said, that this object knew where it was going. Do you think it was an intentional that they were coming here intentionally, or did it actually th- crash? Well, from the reports that we've received, you know, it seems like from the reports that we we have received that you know it was guided or intentional to come down in Kecksburg, but. Uh, you know, from our vantage point in Greensburg, where we was, it just didn't seem like it was, you know, wherever we saw the orange streak, it looked like it was going right towards Kecksburg, mm-hmm. from our vantage point. And do you think, um, and this time it's been 50, what, 56 years since this happened, has, there, has anybody seen anything else in that area that might make you want to think that they came back? Not necessary in, in that note, but I, I will mm-hmm. tell you, since we we started our UFO store about 15 years ago, and I have a log book that I asked the visitors to sign stating whether they seen it, whether their family seen it, they was part of it, or believed in it or whatever and you would be amazed how many people in our area came forth since then that they seen the streak in the sky and i you know i I gotta admit initially i wasn't a believer Mm -hmm. but there's been so many people come to us in our store saying that their relatives seen it in the sky or they was there and, you know, that's where we get some of our leads mm-hmm. and try and follow up on them. So, you know, they made a believer out of me. There, something <laughs> did happen in Kecksburg. Well, I, what, I can, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, the question you just asked, Ron, I can tell you, UFO sighting reports come in from everywhere. Mm-hmm. And there are many, many sightings over the years, uh, not right in the Kecksburg, not immediate Kecksburg, but all over Mount Pleasant Township, all over Westmoreland County, Allegheny, all through southwest PA and across the state, there's reports coming in all the time. Now, that doesn't mean they're unexplainable, but some of the cases are very, very intriguing and very detailed. 
but that may have no connection to the Kecksburg incident. It's just the fact that we get lots of UFO reports, and one of the most active areas actually in the country is along the Chestnut Ridge, which I mm -hmm. talk about quite often. I started investigating those reports back in the 1960s. And the Chestnut Ridge is this mountain range that extends through Westmoreland, Fed, and Indiana County, and down outside of Morgantown in Preston County, West Virginia. But year after year, along the ridge, especially in Westmoreland and Fayette County, UFO sightings, Bigfoot activity, all kind of phenomena occurs yearly. So, yes, we do get UFO reports throughout western Pennsylvania year, uh, basically every year. But you don't know if they're connected to this well, Kecksburg? No, well, we've never seen any indication that they are connected, no. One of your eyewitnesses in your documentary that I watched, um, Randy Overly, said he heard a hissing sound. Now, isn't that unusual for, like, if it's a UFO? Like, I know when I was training um, to be a MUFON field investigator, one of the red flags indicated that it wasn't a UFO if it had a sound. Well, what do you some say UFOs make sounds. I mean, it, it's... it's um, not that common, but you do have UFO incidents where that happens. And he and some others did mention about this kind of a hissing noise. Randy Oberly gave an extremely detailed account. Mm -hmm. And um, he was a young boy at the time. He was playing outside that afternoon. And that's when they heard this kind of this hissing sound. As this thing was apparently, from my recall, he estimated maybe one to two miles away, slowly moving in his direction. This is how he was able to observe it so clearly, because it approached from the distance. He said it passed no more than 150 to 200 feet over top of his head, and then continued out from Norvelt out towards the mountains. And, uh, I mean, he gave a very detailed account that there was a kind of an acorn-shaped object, kind of a goldish-brownish color to the body, and there was kind of some green fire coming from the rear, and he said it was moving about as fast as a small single-engine aircraft, maybe not even that fast. And the body itself, he said, did not give him the impression that it was very, very hot, like something that might have reentered. But he got a very good look at it because it approached him, it passed overhead, and he watched it go out in the distance. And then you had witnesses all through the area who saw it come along that path as well. Mm-hmm. Most of the witnesses said there was the military present, and there was one, um, I think it was the one gentleman in the, in the band, and he said the military officer or the man in fatigue said, you don't want to go down there. And it mentioned it was something from outer space. Now, was is that true, or was that just hearsay? I'd have to know a little more detail. In the band, I'm not sure um, what there was a there was a character in the documentary that said that he went down into the woods to see what was there, and the in the one the um the military personnel said you don't want to go down there, insinuating it was something from outer space. Well, I'm not sure if it, that <laughs> I think that maybe you may be referring to, and again, I need more detail because it, it could be one of different people, and I I think it may have been re, uh talking about one of the reporters who wanted to go, go down into the woods, and they told me if you go down, uh, you'll be arrested. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if that's the same one you're talking about. I'm no. not sure about you know, it was one of the guys, he was a gentleman, he was a black man in the band. He, he had mentioned it. Oh, oh 
talking you're talking about Jerry Betters, you mean who was okay, who was a jazz uh musician. Jazz, yes. Okay, the band thing got me confused. Okay. <laughs> um <laughs> We have our jasmine here, but he's not. He's 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 working. <laughs> he probably okay. would have been able to right. better than No, that. Jerry Betters um that's no that I'm not sure where you got that quote from, but Jerry was Jerry's story from uh, memory is that he he had he was I think renting a farm out around Murraysville at the time that afternoon and there was a bright flash of something scared some of the horses okay. and it wasn't long after he began to hear the radio reports that something had fallen had passed over the area and fallen in the Kecksburg area he didn't have a vehicle at the time because some of his friends had drive out to the area and they found themselves on this dirt lane which is interesting because this dirt lane that other people described to me was not the same location up on Meteor Road where most of the people were. But this, the dirt lane was closer to where the impact site was, where the object fell. And as they approached uh, on that dirt lane, they saw, uh, I believe, some uh, fire equipment. They saw their vehicles, uh, different personnel, people working around. And uh, Jerry looked down towards the field to the left, and he saw a military flatbed tractor trailer uh, with a flatbed on the back, and this object was on it, and it was there was a tarp on it, but from what I recall, it was opened, it partially opened, and he, and he could see it. But again, you know, he's quite a distance away. The lighting is not real good. and But he described seeing this object on it. He was certain it was an Army truck, had a big star on it, and... While as he's watching this thing, there's a, a number of young soldiers there, and a, apparently a higher-ranking officer came down to start screaming at the soldiers, get these people out of there, and they aimed their rifles at them, and they made them leave the area. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the story that I believe yeah, you're talking about. Yeah, that's the story I'm talking about. That is the, that is the story. Now, in the 1940s and 50s, um, a lot of people were investigated on um, the Who Saw Crashes from Project Blue Book. And they were the men in black. And were those the same men in black that you believe that was at the Kecksburg crash site? Well, yeah. Again, nobody knows for sure. I can tell you different witnesses talked about uniformed military who were at the scene. Okay, mm-hmm. But there were also others that said that they saw men in dark suits in different positions, different locations during the evening. And... I remember at least one person telling me that the man in the suit seemed to be giving orders to the military people. Mm-hmm. And um, so you hear these – I mean, the Project Blue Book, I mean, that started – there were three different major Air Force projects. It ended with Project Blue Book basically in January 1970, and, and they investigated many reports of UFO sightings. And there were Air Force officers assigned to every Air Force base in the country, including Pittsburgh. So they did go out and investigate UFO reports. Um, I wouldn't call them men in black because, um, I mean, again, from what we've heard, they were they were generally in, in military uniforms. At least some of the people that I talked with over the years that um, had some interviews. Mm-hmm. But um, anyhow, um, the Air Force did investigate reports for many many years, and of course, officially, they've been out of UFO research for many years. I kind of tend to believe there probably have been other ongoing projects that the public hasn't heard about. Mm-hmm. Well, what would you um, tell our audience? Like, what, what should they take away from Kecksburg? Well, I think what's so fascinating is the fact that one, you, you have it's 
a case where you had so many people involved. You had um, not only civilians involved, but as the story's breaking, you had reporters from all the major news networks out at the scene. So you had them there from radio, television, newspapers. So they became a part of the story. I, I tracked down many of those people. And some of them either interacted with the military or they saw the military activity at the scene. So it's interesting that they were a part of the story as well. And it's, I think, a pretty well-documented fact that something fell from the sky. And whatever it was, it was important enough for the military to respond very quickly. And apparently they recovered the object late that night and it left the air early the next morning. And after 55 years of, re of investigation, that 55 years since this happened, and the government has never come forward to tell us what it was. And that being the case, it remains a mystery. There have been a number of theories over the years um, for Kecksburg the Meteor, the extraterrestrial craft, the Cosmo 1996 um, Soviet satellite recovery, Nazi Bell projects, some other government experiment. What does Stan Gordon think it is? I, I've always <laughs> kept an open mind. There, there is so much detail in there. And there are certain. Here's the thing about detail with this case I've always been very cautious not to release certain things without having enough independent confirmation. And over many, many years, there were some interesting things that came up, but it took me years to be able to confirm it. And there's some things I've, I'm still aware of that I have not released because I'm hoping to get other confirmation on it. There's more to the case that meets the eye. And one of the examples would be we always talk about the one military flatbed tractor trailer that people saw with the tarped object leaving the aerial and left the area at a high rate of speed. But I found out over the years that there was two military flatbed tractor trailers at the scene. One went out earlier to the Pittsburgh area. The other went to Lockbourne Air Force Base near Columbus, Ohio, stayed there a short time, went on to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. There's independent information from different sources about this. And um, so that, that's the whole thing. I keep an open mind. Okay. I said years and years ago, could it have been some very advanced, very secretive man-made space program? Maybe, even though we've learned a lot about that over the years because so many of those programs have been declassified over the years. Could it be something extraterrestrial? I keep an open mind to all possibilities until hopefully someday we have conclusive proof of what it was. Okay, so you're not going to tell us either way if you believe it's ET? Well, That's... because I, don't, I can't say it's ET. <laughs> okay. I can't prove it. And I'm not out to prove it. I'm out well... to look for the evidence. and. Maybe maybe it was, but maybe it was something Keep else. Keep an open mind. Oh no. Keep an open eye. Where can our listeners learn more about your research, Stan? Um, they can go to my website, which is uh, stangordon.info, I-N-F-O. It's my website. There's a lot of information on there, and um, that's probably the best place to start. Is there any um, – Sean, do you have any final questions for Stan or Ron or Cody? Uh, no, I just want to thank them all for being on our show tonight. Thank you. Ron, Ron it, we, if we want to donate money to your volunteer fire department, since we can't go to the festival, should you just go on your Facebook page, find out information? You can go on Facebook, or you can go on our website, KecksburgVFD.com, and uh, we have a, a lot of information on there. You can contact us on there and so forth. So all the information you need to get a hold of us or Emails is on on that website. 
Awesome. Well, it was a pleasure having you all with us. Dan will be back July 16th to talk about his other research and Bigfoot. We're excited about that. And I'm going to leave our audience with this thought. Was it aliens, a meteor, or was it something else entirely? We may never know until the next Kecksburg Festival. <laughs> so please mm-hmm. check out my author page, uh, J.E. Nicasio, at my trilogy uh, From the Skies on Amazon. And my books, they're all there. And guys, um, anything else you want to add before we say goodbye? I'm um, have a good night. <laughs> well, there's people listening out there, and as I said again, even in, over recent months with the virus going on, we're still getting reports in. So if anybody has seen anything unusual and they want to talk to me about it, or they can email me at uh, paufo at comcast.net, and other contact information is available on our website at stangordon.info. Okay, awesome, Stan. Well, next week's um, special guest mm-hmm. is um, apocalyptic author Jackie Trujo- Trula, and we're going to talk about zombies. Sweet. Um, so that's June 25th. I'm excited. And remember, you can rewind 24-7 on beaconoflightradio.com and check out Chasing Prophecy Radio on Facebook and Instagram, Spotify, iHeartRadio. And make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel and learn more about our upcoming guests at chasingprophecy.com. And remember, good night. And everybody, thanks for tuning in to Chasing Prophecy 